Welcome everybody to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell, serial entrepreneur and startup advisor as well. Uh, every week we discover and speak with experts, scientists, and leaders from around the world. Uh, if you like this type of content, please subscribe and comment. It tells Google Gods this is a content worth watching. Today we're joined with Nicola, Nicolina Luak, uh, co-founder and CEO of Glycanage, which is seeking to unlock the human gene glycome for, I, I'm just so used to reading genome, <laughs> unlocking the human glycome for preventing preventative health and longevity. Uh, Nicolina, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. Sweet. So the big thing I, I want to start with is it, they talk about healthcare and the ability to impact people's lives. And I'm wondering what evidence supports glycage. So what, what research was done, that type of thing? Yeah. So it started uh, quite a long time ago. Uh, so like a the field is called glycobiology, and it's been around for about 30 something years. So it's a bit of a new field. Of course, you know, this was known 150 years but ago, but this is uh, when the field started to progress. And our lab was actually the first lab, together with another glycan lab in, in Dublin, we were the first lab to um, look at glycans at scale. So analyze the first 1,000 human glycans uh, in 2007. And that was the birth of this high throughput glycomics, which we use uh, for, for what we do today. Uh, and then from evidence and art standpoint, the clock is about 10 years old. The first publication on the clock was 2013. And it was actually published on the same date and year as the first epigenetic clock. So Steve Horvitz, mm -hmm. um, Horvitz clock. And we saw aging from the moment we looked at these you know, a few thousands of people. I think we were at five or 10,000 people. And the strongest signal you can see is aging. And it was some type of aging. Uh, later, we learned that it is, um, well, something we call biological age now. And from then, so the last 10 years, we've had about 300 publications uh, in good journals, uh, looking at biobanks, all kinds of clinical uh, studies, intervention studies to, to validate what we do. What was, what was able to be known 150 years ago? You said it's like that old, I'm just curious, like 150 years ago, I, I imagine like leaching yeah. is more the thing they were doing. So what were they able to know back then? No, it was uh, blood groups. So oh, okay. blood groups are chemically glycans. Mm. You have a certain blood group because of the uh, glycans and uh, blood cells. So that, that's, that was known 150 years ago. Oh, okay. And then 2007, to now, uh, 300 publications, uh, biobanks, etc. What what are the results of some of those things? Like some of the highlights that that you'd note that you were surprised by, or that really meant a lot to you and to the company and what you're trying to do. Well, I think the most exciting thing, the, the most exciting thing about the field is the underlying biology, and that that's a long conversation. We can go into it, and you know how um, you know everybody's familiar with the genome. Nobody's heard of the glycome. Uh, but it's one of the most dense information sets we, we have in biology. I think highlights uh, of everything is when we had, uh, so if you look at these large longitudinal studies where you have people before they get ill, so when they're healthy, and then they have a follow-up as they develop certain uh, conditions through time, in majority of the conditions we looked at, glycans would alter a decade before you develop symptoms and you're diagnosed with a disease, which means you can preempt it a long time in advance. 
uh, while it's on an early molecular level and, and do preventative healthcare. Mm. So I would say that's the most exciting thing. Um, then there's you know a lot of new recent things happening, but they're they're too early to 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 talk about. But maybe another one I would highlight is gender differences in aging. We can see them very clearly in glycans. Men and women age completely differently, and in women we can preempt menopause, which is the main aging event. Mm. And I think in terms of interventions, probably apart from some drug interventions diet different dietary interventions have been the have had a much stronger impact uh, on glycan age than for example exercise it, for the research populations that you've done your studies on were they diverse enough where anyone can pick up this and know it'll work for them or were pop, some populations left out or um because I, I think often that usually when there's you know clinical research of some kind it's usually like you know guys that do it um, or, you know, guys in like Anglo-Saxon descent and that type of thing. So uh, can you talk, it's kind of like an, a really esoteric nerdy thing to wonder about, but uh, what was the, what's the pie slice in terms of uh, um, diversity when it comes to the actual research? Yeah, so it's not, um, I, I can't tell you the exact pie slice, but mm. uh, so our chief scientist is co-founder of the Human Glycan Project with, with another guy from Harvard. And when they started in 2017, was it 17? I think the first official meeting was 17. Uh, they recruited uh, 31 different population around the world, which was very diverse. So it went from different parts in Asia, parts in Africa, uh, Europe, uh, US. It, they had mm. very nice diversity, um, over 10,000 people and uh, 31 different populations. So we started with a nice diverse baseline there. And then the larger biobanks like Twins UK, Estonian biobank, lots of local ones, um, where you have a decent, even some um, uh, immigrant uh, biobanks like Sebra cohort in, in the UK, which is um, um, uh, white baseline immigrants, Asian and uh, Afro-Caribbean, mm. uh, first and second generation. So we do have more diversity than, than, than many other biomarkers yeah. We made a big effort in that. And we also have a very nice gender balance. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like I'm, I'm used to reading clinical studies where if you look at the population density, it's like, it's great for people who look like me, but like everyone else who wants to rely on something and know that they can trust it. That's one of the things I always imagine if I'm going to the hospital and they say, hey, take this drug, you're gonna have this type of out output from it. And they take it and they realize they're, they're, they're uh, you know, there's personalized medicine, but there's even like just a, as an ethnicity and stuff, like they weren't even taken into account because, uh, you know, population sample and stuff like that. Um, and then you have a different reaction. And then the doctor's like, well, that's not supposed to be happening. It's like, well, it's not supposed to be happening because it wasn't research and stuff. And I, I can only imagine the the stress and the terror of doctors being like, well, we don't know because we didn't, you know, make an effort. So, so I really love that there was such a large effort to get so much diversity in the research population. It shows like a really robust robustness to the model. Thank yeah. you. And I think with drug response, it gets even more complicated. Everything we do is experimental. Mm -hmm. You yeah. give a drug and you you wait for a fact. And if it's good, you continue. If not, you try something else. There's no um, there's no personalized science behind it yet that you can apply. There's some in genomics on, on, on a certain level, but there's so many other things that impact it, from microbiome to epigenetics that yeah. you will never have. Uh, the perfect prediction in an individual until we do all of that and put all mm. of that together and figure out what works for you. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, and there's definitely questions later in, in, that I want to talk about, like what do we, all we need. But for, for now, I'd like to dump, jump into the glycome. Like you're right. When I, even reading it in the intro, some people were definitely gonna make fun of me. Yeah. I, I started saying uh, the genome because I'm just so used to you know seeing those letters, and I'm like mildly dyslexic. But the, w from a biological standpoint, what is that uniqueness that you you mentioned a minute ago to the glycome? Yeah, no, I'm very dyslexic, uh, so <laughs> don't worry about it. And also to make you feel better, uh, Carolyn Bertozzi, she won a Nobel Prize last year uh, for her work on well, using click chemistry to understand what glycans and self-surface do. And this is mm -hmm. actually the first Nobel Prize involving glycans. Uh, she was in a room of, I don't know how many Nobel laureates, let's say you know, quite a few, and she asked the question of, you know, in the genome, we have four letters. How many letters do we have in the glycome? And no Nobel laureate knew the answer. There's nine letters in the glycome. Mm. So, you you know, it, it's a field that's been hugely ignored and not really put into mainstream. There, there were not even tools to analyze it uh, at scale as, as we have today. But if you look at a cell, it has four components. You have DNA protein, lipid, and carb. And mm -hmm. glycans are the carb part. Uh, they're sugars, complex sugars. But when we think of them as sugars, usually people think of things they're familiar with. So you think about glucose. You know, Maybe you think about different dietary sugars. But what we don't realize is that this is also a building block of life. And we manufacture these sugars ourselves within the cell. They become a component of the cell. They're a structural component of majority of our proteins. And they enable our biology to communicate. So there's a sugar language around our cells and our proteins, even our lipids, that enables our biology to communicate. If we didn't have glycans, we would still be single-cell bacteria. So it's an evolutionary step that we develop to become multicellular. Mm. And it's involved in pretty much everything. But very little of it is actually known. And from what we know, it's quite exciting. Does it have... So uh, the DNA or S4, um, and yet it can do so much with that. Does it have a lot more, because um, it has eight letters, or, sorry, nine letters. Uh, does it allow to have more customization, more uh, capacity yeah. to, to do things because it has more letters? Or, yeah, sometimes I wonder if like you have more, but you do less. Like I think one of the largest uh, genomes that we've studied is like one of the, the stupidest, like small uh, cells somewhere. Uh, I think I was reading that where it's like, it's not even a complex organism that has like one of the largest genomes. And so it's like, what are you doing with all that extra data? Like you're just carrying that stuff around. So I just imagine like having suitcases of stuff wherever you go. But so what what do, what do we get for having nine letters versus like four or fewer letters for the glycome? So it's magnitudes more complex than the genome, mm. even to analyze. It's very complicated. Um, it's also something that is influenced by genetics. So your glycan composition and, and I can talk about antibodies because we specialize it. It's um, uh, quite heritable. So there's a network of, for example, 40 genes, which define the different structures on, on your antibodies. So you inherit it as a complex trait. And then it's also influenced by epigenetics. It's influenced by your environment. Um, and it puts all of that together into something that is a molecule that actively does work in the body. Mm. So it's in a way more upstream. Uh, and uh, uh, in simple, you can think of it as functionality of proteins mm. or they're technically post-translational modifications, which means they change how your protein works. 
proteins work beyond the genetics, epigenetics, incorporating everything else. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I always want to. Pro, proteins are like that really complex thing that uh, it's it, it always strikes me as weird for all the people PhDs that are listening in. It always feels weird to me that just on how something's shaped. I know this is weird because when you get down to the chemistry of, of things, like a lot of things just in our cells have like a specific thing that like slots into it and stuff. But I always feel like it's such an odd concept that just the the, the fold of a chair would determine its function uh, beyond. Uh, I guess that actually makes kind of obvious sense now I said that out loud, but it always feels like such an odd concept to me. Like it's not intuitive that like the different folding or like how the mechanisms come into it would allow such variability. Um, yeah. I'm just like, I guess I'm used to like the macro scale of like seeing a tree and all these different things, but I guess uh, form is function. Yeah, and actually glycans are in this areas where they, uh, for example, define the form of antibodies. Hmm. They can completely change its form. Yeah. What what interested you in, in the glycome? What, what made you want to dedicate such a large portion of your life and probably your foreseeable future to developing this type of uh, a research and uh, intervention type strategies? Just a, yeah. So I'm actually a, a tech engineer as a background. I'm not a mm. biologist. Uh, I got into it five years ago and it all came from my father. So our chief scientific officer is my uh, dad and he founded this, uh, well, he started in um, uh, glycan science in 1991 when I was born. So the year I was born, he published his first study in glycans and brain aging. And it was co-authored by my mom, who was a neuroscientist. So they, it was a little bit of a you know family history. Uh, and he dedicated all of his career to it. He's one yeah. of the top experts in the world, one of the top 10 in glycobiology. He did a lot for the field. And he was convincing me for a very long time that this could, you know, we can bring this to people in some way, that we could measure aging, that we can use this for preventive healthcare. Uh, and it took me a while to decide to, to, you know, to cross over. Um, and I actually didn't think of aging as a disease. I, I thought it was more of a treating aging was, was for vanity. It wasn't for um, health. But then as I understood more and more, I realized, oh, wow, instead of waiting for things to break, you can work on actually what's causing the problem and mm -hmm. delay a whole host of issues in the future. What, so you have your parents that are the genesis, where do you see your, your work influencing how it's going to go for the next couple of years or into the foreseeable future? Well, first we managed to put the first uh, product on the market. So Glycan Age mm. is period the first Glycan product on the market. Um, actually, no, I'm lying. There is a early uh, liver disease detection diagnostic that went on the market uh, a little while ago, but let's say we're the first in this um, non-diagnostic application. And later on, we'll be diagnostic. I think there's two roles that we play. One is how do you create um, products from this that people can use and benefit from? And that includes clinicians, includes individuals, uh, bringing it to a point that it's actually useful. Because if you give you a bunch of complex science, what are you going to do with it? And that's how we started you got a number and a bunch of complex science and nobody understood what it meant. I think we've gone very far since then. Uh, another one is this translation of the science. Because if you're talking to a glycobiologist, it sounds alien to you. Like it's a completely different. It, it will take a while to be able to understand what they're talking about. 
and finding a language which is easier to translate on different level, levels of expertise that we can reach a more broad uh, audience for interest. This is, for example, what happened with the Human Genome Project. It became a PR campaign. And, and then after CSI Miami, DNA became something everybody knew what it is, or they, you know, they thought they knew what it is. So I think that's a that's the second role we play. Mm -hmm. Are you? Is there interest to delve deeper, spend some amount of your money on R and D to understand more of the glycome, or do you see yourself more licensing out IP from research institutions that are doing that cutting edge type stuff, and then uh, being the more innovative factor that combines the the history that you have, the innovation that you have, as well as the vision for the future? So we currently invest all of our profits into R and D. And even the commercial analysis funds R&D in the lab because there's so much to do. Part, part of it is grant funding. So the research institute was, is, is, well, they do a very little contract uh, analysis. They pretty much have us as the biggest client right now. Everything else is, is grant and, uh, and academic research. And whenever there's opportunity, we, we do a lot of a lot of research where we cover the cost, for example, because we want to understand if a certain drug has an impact or if we can uh, preempt uh, different women's health issues. That's a big area of interest. Mm -hmm. uh, fertility is a big area of interest. So these are all things that we look at as R&D projects. We don't know if they're going to come up with anything interesting, but somebody has to do it. And yeah. moment, if we can't find other funding, we fund it ourselves. I think are are you familiar with what Sens is doing with the with the I think it's a like glycase glycome they're doing something with uh, similar to this I think Sens is one second it's like one of their re new research projects are you familiar with Sens? Uh, Sens Aubrey's um, X Institute. Yes, I feel like it's <laughs> yes. not really a, it's not a thing anymore. No, uh, I know. Uh, uh yeah. yeah the one that yeah lisa was recently on and they were talking about i'm trying to pull it up while i'm like talking at the same time see if i can find where i'm thinking of i think there's something they're, they're working on that's related to this uh but anyways, be really I, cool. yeah well i think that's like one of their new branches is they want to do something on the glycome if i'm if i'm misremembering this my apologies people and maybe you know this would be a good you know parallel partnership because they do a lot of research into longevity and i think they're uh soon going to be looking for grant applications so are do you see yourself partnering with people like this ends to do this work or how do you see because if you shoulder all the burden on yourself that's a, that's quite a tall task so i always wonder like how can you uh diversify the risk and, and lower your potential to have like not great outcomes by overspending so first most of our and funding comes from europe so the mm -hmm. labs had uh, 40 million in European grants in the last 16 years, and that brought us to where we are with the R&D side. We're open to all of the new funding mechanisms. So SENS would definitely be, I have to look at if they're looking at glycans or a lot of times people also talk about glycation and, and mix it with glycosylation, which are glycans. Glycation is more damaged by simple sugars to to. Uh, to proteins, which which is a different mechanism process, um, but yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. If they're in glycans, then we would love to support mm -hmm. whoever we can. Yeah, what you said earlier that 
the you can potentially detect things 10 years before they become a, a larger issue which i'm a big fan of because i think this for people who've never been sick when you go to the hospital it's like trying to catch it's trying to stop someone from falling when they're like an inch off the ground it takes a lot of work and it's quite painful for everyone involved but if you can get in in advance it's relatively much easier to address the problem so what diseases such uh, agent i would say it's a disease but it's more like a bunch of diseases working together be jerks but um what what do you suspect or what have you seen so far that could be diseases that this type of research would have an effect on in terms of monitoring personalized medicine or seeing it before it's a bigger problem? So first we looked at uh, life expectancy and mortality. And then when we saw the, uh, well, these are associations, but when we saw that, we focused on what's the biggest killer and that's cardiovascular disease. So we have mm -hmm. a decade of work on cardiovascular disease where we even mechanistically understand what's what's going on. So in general, we would see glycans shift a decade before a heart attack or stroke. We also see them shift um, about seven years before hypertension. So you can preempt hypertension. Uh, and you know, in, in humans, you can do causal studies, but you can do them in mice. So mm -hmm. we had um, a mice trial where we, you know, you feed mice a high-fat diet. They become obese, they develop hypertension. But if you give them a certain glycan, uh, like a precursor to a glycan structure, you get obese mice, which don't become hypertensive. Hmm. So there's a causal, in, at yeah. least in the case of obesity-induced hypertension. Yeah. Are you, are you um, partnering with research organizations that are looking for interventions? Or are you going to use... Are you gonna make this like your like the brain that you can develop interventions yourself? So we try to get into any longevity trial that's going on. So any new drug development, any nutraceutical. If if we have a connection, we'll try and join the trial and see if there's an effect on glycans. There's of course interventions that we already now know work in animal models, but these are mm -hmm. still we're we're waiting for a publication probably for the next year. It takes on average mm -hmm. six months to a year until something gets published. Um, so I can tell you more about that then. And that's something that we're working to co-develop with the researchers so to help them more, um, to dig deeper in what's what's going on in the therapy. But we we don't do drug development ourselves. We would mm. do uh, yeah, basic sense. research that supports it, and then somebody else will go and develop the drugs. Yeah. The, is there anything that it's not suited for for someone who's you know still learning about the glycome? Are there things that people would wrongly attribute to be someone they could track with the glycome? You know, um, you know, like sort of questions that you get that you notice that are incorrect in terms of assumptions that people can use it for. Well, the biggest incorrect assumption is that um, uh, glycans are the same thing as, for example, HbA1c. Or that this is something you can impact by how much sugar you eat. Hmm. Not, nothing to do with it. These are sugars you manufacture yourself. So they develop together doing protein synthesis. They're a structural component of the protein. They're, they're, you, you can't just eat a low sugar diet or high. Yes, of course, diet will have an impact on it, but it's not a direct impact of, of the dietary sugar you're eating. Um, so that's that's one. Another one would maybe be if you're, uh, so what we 
really looking at glyconage is um, uh, your adaptive immune system antibodies. And those is glycoproteins or the glycans in your antibodies. And that is a reflection of aging of the immune system. And then as the immune system ages, it's underactive in some areas, overactive in others. So you get this baseline low-level chronic inflammation. So it's an inflammation clock. Mm-hmm. Or you have an underactive immune system, which, for example, doesn't tackle cancer or an infection well. Um, so that's what we're looking at. And a lot of times people think that this is also something you can you can measure aging in children. And we actually see that because their immune system is still developing, they're quite pro-inflammatory when they're young. Only mm-hmm. as they hit puberty does it stabilize and then aging begins on that side, at least from what we're looking at on the mm-hmm long-term sign. So that's one. Can I test my son who's 13? No, don't do it. <laughs> you know, well, you, there are some specific uh, signatures, for example, um, uh, juvenile uh, arthritis. And that's something where there can be a nice glycan diagnostic. And it's also preemptive. Uh, in, in rheumatoid, uh, glycans also alter a decade before symptoms and a diagnosis. Uh, the problem is we don't have a lot of interventions for prevention. So you're more just preempting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then anything else I, I, I don't think I can think of because it would respond to most things you do. So anything mm-hmm. you're going through in life, any therapy or any intervention you're trying, you're going to see an effect if it has an effect on you. If it doesn't, mm-hmm. you're not going to see any effect. Yeah. So uh, kids don't, don't, you know, don't, don't uh, put it there. Are there any differences if like, Compared like the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, is there a population in terms of age where the, the glycome really changes or like there's a really u- unique uh, deviation from what would be at normal? Well, just, just in women around menopause. So mm. men are very linear. So post puberty, they, they just go up in a straight line. I was boring, but up in, <laughs> in terms of cardioglycan markers, they're more complex than women. Women are very simple in cardio markers. They have one structure, which, which is very um, predictive. In men, it's a whole host of different structures. Um, but in terms of aging, they're, they're linear. Women would generally look more favorable to men uh, pre-menopause. And then as they go into perimenopause, so their hormones start to decline, they um, have this accelerated rate rate of aging. We see that it's more than double than what it would usually be. And then they catch up with men and, and they move together with them. Um, mm. So if that, that's... A, if a, sorry, uh, if a woman never had menopause, would they? do you think that they women would just naturally... Well, I mean, it seems like women typically last longer than men in terms of aging. But if they, ne- if they could just skip menopause or something or, or damp it down and not have these negative effects... Do you, do you expect like women would just all live to like 100 or something? Like what would be the effects of I, every woman I've known who's gone through menopause did not enjoy the experience They were you know, but so if they could skip it, other than just like the negative experience you're missing, would there be other health benefits that you'd see or that you'd suspect that you'd see? Well, most chronic conditions in, in women, they develop postmenopause or that's where you have the biggest, uh, it's mm. not like an inflection point for, for women's health that, that leads them more towards disease. Um, it would have a massive effect on, on health span. I, 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 I'm not sure I can uh, tell you how much, but I would say yeah. it would be pretty significant, maybe if I speculate. 
a decade or, or two. But, um, you know, we, we, we don't know until somebody tries to do that. And there's not many solutions for it because women run out of eggs. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. So there's no, uh, like, as a woman, you don't have any, like, pet theories or ideas for correcting that type of thing? Or is it just something to be aware of? And then when you see that change to maybe have some personalized medicine or preventions interjecting at that point to correct them? Is it kind of like well, just like a sunk cost, like it'll it'll happen, so then just, just account for it and have interventions help for it? Well, we do see HRT has a significant impact, mm. and it would impact your glyconage as well, positively in most cases. And we see some negative markers sometimes go up in a small... So it, it's something that should be personalized medicine, and there'll be better and better tools to, to do that properly. Uh, but even with HRT, you do have a, a 14% um, reduction in all-cause mortality. Uh, you have a 26% reduction in diabetes and, 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 and many other conditions. So it's a known um, positive health span effect. Mm. Uh, but it, 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 we're, I think what that field is searching, there's been a lot of um, misconceptions around it and some bad, bad science in the past, uh, but there's definitely uh, space for precision medicine. Uh, with with HRT, but the problem with HRT is you're still losing fertility, and the biggest issue with women is actually just loss of fertility. That happens far faster than it happens in men. It happens with well, pretty much. I don't want to, but from you know 35, you're in the you know lower reserve, and then by the time you get to menopause, you have maybe a thousand eggs left from mm. a million that you had when wow. you were born. And maybe about three hundred thousand by the time you hit puberty, um, and it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's men have lifelong production, so you, you don't have the same complications. So when you look at this record holders, the oldest man who had a child naturally was ninety-two. The mm. oldest woman who had a child, child naturally was uh, fifty-seven. So it's yeah. a huge, huge gap. So what the field is looking to fix there is to preserve. Um, well, ovarian function, but also ovarian reserve. And you have a few exciting companies working on that uh, that are targeting um, AMH, uh, which is this hormone that um, it's like a proxy for ovarian reserve. And it's now assumed that if you suppress it, it could um, uh, stop the release of eggs within a month. So you keep your ovarian, and it could potentially even be a contraceptive. Uh, so instead of what's done today, where you're um, making the body think it's pregnant as a contraceptive and you're still losing your egg reserve, it could be something that stops this release of eggs. And by maybe you start in your 20s, by the time you get in your 30s, you have your egg reserve or a 20-year-old. Now, mm -hmm. we don't know if there's going to be a difference if you're in, a, if you're in your 40s or in a uh, the whole body ages as well, and we don't know how that impacts it, but it would fix the problem of loss of eggs, which which could be exciting. Why why is it that when we're developing up to like puberty, that we see such a precipitous loss of eggs, or even even our neurons? We have like a ton of neurons, and we lose a huge amount of it. I was wondering why is that? Why is it that we start with so much, and then it reduces by half or more? over the course of 10 years. And then it's like, well, I'll be happy with that. And then we were fine from there. It seems kind of weird to me. It's like we're over-engineered or something. I don't know why that is. Why would we start with a million and then lose 
over the course of your first like five, like you're not doing anything with them at that time i think i don't know but uh why no. why do they just they just die or is it like the body's like testing them or something and these are like the bad ones it's like we have a 70 percent success rate for healthy eggs why is this why does this exist why does this happen <laughs> i have no idea and i don't mm. know if we know the answer yet but it's, it's a weird question mm. yeah is there any reason why men would have more complex cardio markers like why you mentioned that earlier i was like oh why why yeah. do we get that yeah we don't know we mm. have no idea just yet but just there's definitely yeah. we definitely know that there's a big gender difference in 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 well, at least by looking at glycans, how you develop cardiovascular disease. Hmm. Uh, when we know, I'll let you know if we find okay. out. Yeah, I was just. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was that just wondering because yeah. Yeah, uh, men have a higher rate of uh, cardiovascular disease. So I wonder yeah. if that would be something related to it. Um, I don't know why these things exist for the gender differences, but it seems like in studying them, we can understand each other. It's like what happens to a, a woman and how it affects. It could like I think I was recently talking to uh, Jennifer Garrison and she said if you want to know how long you'll live as a man in terms of longevity if you have a sister look at when she has menopause because that there's a strong correlation with uh, that determining like how long you'll live so if she has it really early you might not be long for the world but if she has it later it means you probably have you'll you'll last a little longer which is kind of interesting they have like a longer house band a lifespan well the genetics play a part but beyond whatever genetics you're born with mm -hmm. we know you can get an extra 13 50 years of um, healthy life with lifestyle modifications mm -hmm. so there's a lot you can do no matter what that and of course you can there's a lot you can do to um decrease a big timeline if you've been given one <laughs> so it can go in both directions mm -hmm. yeah the is there any thought about uh, getting this insured under insurance so people can just when their yearly checkup the doctor says like here take this you know this the sampling of tests and we have just a, a um even if it's like local or something i don't know is that something that you can do in the eu because you guys i think you have i'm in the u.s so i'm just used to like insurance being obnoxious which may be uh, harder to do but in the eu i think that might be maybe it'd be even more obnoxious i don't know but uh is that something that you can do is this something that an avenue that you do see yourself going down to like partner with clinicians get it insured so that it's easier for people to access so eu is complicated because usually mm. we're country to country with you know local healthcare systems um we're looking at it in the middle east so that mm. could be an early adopter they're very early in adopting a lot of new technologies they don't have the burden of worrying about health economics because if you for example want to go into the nhs you have to prove that your solution is going to save the healthcare system money which is a very large expensive trial for 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 a young company you you, you generally yeah. can't go there until much later on but in the middle east it's it's a little bit different of course there should be some uh cost benefit in, in terms of reducing disease but they're not as reliant on that system as, as Europe is. And U.S. can be as well. The, the issue with the U.S. is we're trying to get to the point where aging is considered a, a disease so you can treat it, which we're, we're, I think there is some movement in getting close to that, but aging is still not seen as a disease. So technically, you can't treat it yet under healthcare. Um, what we what we're looking at for that is uh, 
developing specific diagnostic markers. Because when we're looking at aging, it's not a diagnostic. Getting into healthcare is, is more tricky. You're mainly in, you can get into private healthcare, but it's cash pay. It's, it's not going to be reimbursed by insurance. But as we go more towards specific conditions, and you can't go with many. So for example, what we look at in glycanage, we, we just um, uh, published a large review paper that looked at all of our work, all of the work from uh, other labs around the world. And today it's been associated with 72 different diseases where we either mm. have, well, glycans have predictive, prognostic, and diagnostic power. Now, of the 72, you can select one or maybe a group like autoimmunity and then go with that uh, to FDA as, as a diagnostic. Mm. So that's sense. something we have in our pipeline. And it, it, it takes time and it's big trials, but um, eventually we could have a marker for predicting. Uh, for uh, I think maybe autoimmunity or perimenopause could, could be the most interesting ones. Mm. It sounds like Dubai in the Middle East is like definitely might be like an early adopter of what you're working on, make yeah. it a little easier for you. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, how often would you want to um, do an analysis like this? Is it something that you do quarterly, or is it just one year health checkup? Like, how often would you want the sampling data to make sure you can have a a, a good understanding of a person? So it depends on where you are in life and what you're doing. You can so if you look at the half life, half half life is above twenty one days. So you wouldn't really, um, you know, you would wait. If we're doing a study, we would do at least six to eight weeks minimum mm. post intervention. Three months is even more recommended because it doesn't change much. Uh, actually, on average, if you look at people, they age a year per year by their glycan or glycan age. Um, but if they do a change, so lifestyle change intervention, you can see effect of that after three months. And other interventions, if they're very gradual, maybe you can wait a bit longer and you might see an effect in six months. If you're going through a health change or, or something's, something new is happening in your life, you can measure how that's having an effect on you, if it's having a negative effect or if you're doing just fine. So it depends on... Well, I would recommend if there's nothing specifically that you're doing in terms of a new health intervention, you can measure once a year, maybe twice a year maximum. If you're doing a specific intervention, check in after three months, see how you've done. If there's a positive change, continue the behavior for another half a year, a year, and then check into it again. Mm -hmm. um, I'll tell you my example. I've had lots of negative changes in the last year and um, I could measure every few months you mm. know, how, how negatively it's changing. So I would want to check in as, 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 as often as I could. Yeah. And then in checking in, you can, you know, hopefully course correct to make things better. Yeah. Yeah. If your so, circumstances allow it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, for, uh, are you familiar with Brian Johnson's blueprint? Yes. I haven't studied it in detail, but of course he's made it. Yeah. He's made what do you, what? For for biohackers and for people who want to be on the cutting edge and figure out uh, like a DIY equivalent of this, where they do something like yours and like a couple other tools um, to replicate his, I think he spends like $2 million a year. So I think take his and like maybe make it like for the everyman version. Um, so taking something like yours once a year, what other things would you want people to take to have a complete, uh, that you think people should be um, 
in the buffet of of uh, understanding their aging and their health mm-hmm. for for their own benefit. They were just biohackers and they just want to you know pay out of pocket. Don't worry about insurance. What what all tools and resources do you think they should be using? And then um, I guess um, like trying to replicate the blueprint from Brian Johnson at the same time. See if that's use, uh, something that the average person can do. Yeah, I think you can. I think you can overdo metrics as well. Mm. It becomes a bit of an obsession and sometimes that um, is not as healthy, but I admire what he's doing. They're, they're putting a big effort and definitely changing uh, a lot of opinions around it. I would rather recommend doing intervention by intervention. So you decouple the effect and you see you know, how much is one thing adding or taking away instead of doing everything at once. I don't think there's a good reason to do mm-hmm. all of these things at once. Um, you can introduce them much more gradually. Um, and I forgot your question. I'm sorry. It's been... No, no worries. The, it? Yeah, it's a, we're, we're having an eight-hour difference here. So Nicolina has <laughs> been very patient with her uh, time. The, uh, basically, part one, uh, how would you replicate that type of thing? And uh, the blueprint it sounds like you would gradually do it, pick an area uh, and affecting your longevity and health span and then slowly move in. So you don't have compounding effects. So you don't know you're doing like two, three, you're doing two things that actually are doing roughly the same thing. Um, so that's part one. And then there was part two, but I'd love to d- dive d- down into that. What if you were to do it for yourself, if you were to replicate this, what would what would that strategy look like? And not it's not advice for anyone else. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. What 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 tests would you be taking? What metrics would you take? And then like as you get you get those baselines, what would be your next steps in that type of thing? Well, I think that will also be quite individual. What we can hmm. do now from your glycome is not just give you an age, but we can preempt where you might be headed. And you know, we can't tell you diseases, but we could say it's gut health, it's uh, an overactive immune system. It's heart health, so forth. So you can metabolic health. So you can know. And from there, you have a different panel of things you would do. Different panel Mm. of interventions for gut health. Different panel of um, different diagnostic tests you would do. Some for autoimmunity. Others for, for example, uh, early colonoscopy and so forth. So it would be, it's always individual. And I you know, what I've done myself, I've measured everything that I thought was worth measuring. So you start mm-hmm. from the genome, uh, you see what you're born with, if you can identify some inherent risks, uh, and then you do all of the regular uh, blood works, which are available to you. You see if there's anything um, that's specific to you. You try to understand if it's genetic, like I um, metabolize iron much better. That's genetic. Mm-hmm. It's from my grandfather's side. Uh, and then you look at if you can identify what risk something might have in the future. Um, like I would measure specific things for me, which would be hormones, because I have mm. um, uh, like a, there's no genetic test for it, but an inherent risk for PCOS. So I would always measure that. And that's a risk for diabetes. And that is something I also have in the family. So I would find things that matter to me. Mm-hmm. And then measure those. There will never be one forever. Somebody might have a lot of family history of cancer or a lot of predisposition that they they already know. And then maybe a full body MRI would be recommended or di- different early cancer screening. It will always be, you know, there's never going to be one that's going to yeah. be important for, for everybody. Yeah. I, I was wondering when um, 
when you see a doctor, is there a way to get your eyes on all the major areas? So you have the blood and um, blood pressure and that type of thing that usually is, is done at the time. Uh, but then I also wonder, are there other things that could cover other areas like the the gut health, et cetera, that we just meant that you just mentioned? And then what other areas are typically, you know, something that maybe is not a concern, but good to like keep an eye on because like the, the risks of it. Uh, maybe if you're like outdoors all the time in the summer, maybe something to keep an eye on skin cancer, for instance. But yeah. so is there, yeah, like you, so you can have like the eyes on the, the like the largest percentage before it gets to the point where it's not usable uh, to keep track of your health and inter intervene accordingly. Like last year, my, my doctor was like, you have high cholesterol, lose <laughs> lose weight or take a pill. And I was like, I'll lose weight. That's easier. I'm, I'm squishy anyway, if that works out. Um, so like, the, so that type of thing. So uh, I wonder with what we have now, what, what could we do next with uh, products like yours to get a, a as big of a sense of where your health is without going to the point where you're like over metricizing and, and, you know, finding like false negative, uh, false positives. Yeah. Well, different products play a different role. Ours yeah. is uh, less frequency, more value for long-term health outcomes. So you do mm. a intervention, you check in with this in three months or in six months, you see, okay, this, if you see a positive change or reduction in your glyconage, and you can really reduce your, your glyconage. We, we see that on average, if you're going to talk about work, word like records, our average successful user reduces 5.4 glycan years per, per in, in a year. Mm. And sometimes they get better than that. Sometimes they get those years back because they go back to old behaviors. So it's usually we see there's a very good six months effect. And then sometimes we tend to go back to... Um, some old habits. So, see, my brain's stopping functioning. Mm, yeah, I'm missing some sleep. Uh, another thing. So, okay. So, on what we do in a few months, you have feedback if you're going to have a long-term outcome. Another thing is you need daily feedback. Mm -hmm. And for example, diet is something you would want to check into on something that gives you daily feedback. And you have a number of different companies. One is uh, Zoe. We, we just did a large study with them, which does like a two-week, um, like it started as a science um, uh, not experiment, but like a, a research study where they give you this protocol for two weeks where you wear a glucose monitor, you look at your individual uh, response to, they give you muffins, which are high in fat or high in carbs. So you see how you individually respond to that. And then they look at microbiome mm. and a number of different things. And then from there, you can get, um, they run this machine learning, which tells you what foods work better or worse for you. And then you follow that and you follow your symptoms, you follow progress and fix your diet without um, following some kind of generic, confusing advice. Because I think in terms of nutrition, there's so much contradicting advice everywhere and that's because we're so unique and individual and just because something's like a vegan diet is working for somebody it might actually be causing you harm if you mm. have a different um you know you have a different response to it so these are things you will measure more frequently also um sleep these wearables are super useful they would give you feedback on, you know, if you have a meal too late, you're going to be able to see it in your sleep. You have a glass of wine, you're going to be able to see it in your, your sleep. You're not going to feel any different the next day. But if you look at your metrics and the wearables, they will be different. So it gives you feedback on a daily basis. Hey, you're doing damage here or, you know, you're, you're doing quite well. So yeah. I would say those 
And then there's some early screening tests that depending on if you need them or not, but uh, a lot of times the recommendation for them is way too late. So for example, with the colonoscopy, it's recommended, it depends market to market, but it's pretty much 50 plus. But in some people already in their 30s and 40s, they've, they've, they've already got to it. So it should be something that's identified uh, that we, you can prevent if, if you do early screening. And of course, a lot of these early screenings are not so enjoyable to do, but if you identify your risks and then you do them, then they're definitely worthwhile in the mm -hmm. long run. Yeah, the, uh, the food one, I just, this is the first time hearing about it, Zoe. And uh, that sounds really cool. Cause I always wonder, you know, is there a way to eat optimally? Cause I don't, uh, I don't eat a lot, but I always wonder, am I eating the right things? And you know, you read the internet and it's like, everyone has the theory, like eat aluminum. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> like it's all equally valid in terms of, uh, I don't know what I'm supposed to be eating, but that'd be pretty interesting. The, for for your for your thing, what what is the benefit of getting a uh, a five point difference? Like if I if I used your product and I did an intervention, what would I feel like? What would be the outcome of that type of difference? Is it just like something on that's a number, or would I actually like have an Im improvement in my life? Like would I feel that? So we we don't. Uh... So some things we know, some things we don't know. Mm. And there's been one, well, a thousand people multiomic study, uh, Arcadis, with, it's a biobank with, with Edinburgh University that looked at uh, all the different aging clocks in a, in a thousand people at baseline. And then they had a 10-year follow-up. And it looked at uh, if you had an accelerated aging clock in which, whichever of the ones was a predictive of hospitalization. And there, um, an aging uh, or a glycanasia was above your age was most predictive of the broadest scale of reasons people were hospital hospitalized mm. in 10 years. So we know it's meaningful. We don't yet know how meaningful um, in an individual. might. We don't know if it's going to be a year for a year or if five years are going to be worth one year. Might never be as specific, but we do know that, you know, you will have a better outcome if... Um, uh, you, you you reduce some, uh, you know, if you have a higher score, if you can get it to normal or if you can get it to under normal. Actually, we know that the average good is 10 years uh, under your age. That's the average good. And the average bad is 10 years over your yeah. age. So even if you're close to your age, there, there's a lot of room for improvement. Mm. How do you influence it? Because you mentioned earlier that diet doesn't do like a, diet doesn't do that much to it so then how do you influence it you take no, that you get this data and then what do you do diet does quite a lot oh, okay maybe you meant I, sugar because like we make our own sugar i think that's probably what i'm remembering so it, it's not something directly impacted by the sugar you eat in your diet it, it's more mm. complex if yeah. you there's some people which are very good carb metabolizers we, we had a study of a thousand people on five different diets and one of them was a high carb diet and even in that cohort, you had people who benefited from the diet. And it was actually about um, you know, half of the co cohort sees benefit, half of the cohort sees harm. So there's no bad, um, you know, there, the, protein is not inherently good. Uh, carbs are not inherently good or bad. Fat is not mm. inherently good or bad and so forth. It's, it's all about what's going to work for you as an individual. Uh, we see that, for example, caloric restriction is really effective, weight loss as well. 
uh, we did 700 people on, on 800 calories for eight weeks. They saw quite a significant reduction in their glycan age. Um, I forgot the exact number, but if I'm not wrong, it was four to five years, which was pretty extensive in, in eight weeks. It's much more than you would see on the uh, epigenetic aging clocks. Then weight loss. We did weight loss as something you we followed longitudinally in the twins cohort. So twins who gain weight, twins who lose weight, and the twins who lose weight, they age slower. The twins who gain weight, they age quicker. Uh, we also did a cohort with bariatric surgery. And because there's an extensive weight loss, um, we saw an average of nine years reduction after six months. Not, not that I would recommend it. It's just a validation that weight mm -hmm. loss is really important, however you get to there. There is one caveat to that, and that's exercise. So we did um, a bunch of different studies. One, one was big. It's, we're just about getting it published uh, because the, originally the funders didn't allow, like the outcome majority of the gym uh, people in their 40s and 60s between 40 and 60, going to the gym for the very first time, an intense exercise program, they actually saw accelerated aging. Mm -hmm. um, but we did see some of their glycan cardio markers go backwards. So they were creating chronic inflammation and inflammation, but some of the cardio inflammation was reducing. So mm -hmm. it wasn't as straightforward. HIIT training had an effect, sprint training in a group of young men, they're all 35. They saw a reduction after 12 weeks. But what we generally see is negative if you do an intense diet and exercise at the same time. In a way, I know this is how the industry is, in a way, that this, these, these two things you should do together, otherwise you won't have the outcome you want. But actually, that might be false, and that's mm. something that we're going to need to wait a little bit for more evidence. But if you think of it in a energy standpoint first you're you're making your body build new muscle so it needs extra energy and then you're depriving it of the energy by starving it at the same time yeah so you're burning the candle at both ends and that's when we often see glycanage go up with gradual weight loss over time not just a tense you know free free month gym because my theory is um gyms have a big spike of um signups in january for about yeah. three months, they, they make about 40% of their annual mm -hmm. revenue in the first three months of the year. And then people keep their membership and they keep paying, but they stop going. Mm -hmm. And my theory is they put a lot of effort in those three months. They overstress themselves physically. They go, they combine these two things together. And then their body tells them, please stop doing this to yourself. <laughs> but, you know, they keep guilt tripping you. So you keep um, paying the membership. So mm -hmm. I think some of our, theories of you know how you achieve certain things and what's healthy could end up being wrong in the long run what we see with diet is that if you see a positive effect we generally just see a positive effect there's not like an up and down and mm. we don't have we have clinical evidence for microbiome transplants in colitis patients mm. and their glycome becomes younger with uh, transplants from a healthy donor into a um, somebody with a, with, a, with a condition. So technically anything that's a successful gut health intervention could have an impact. And we see a lot of individuals just um, you know, optimize for diversity and not necessarily taking out meat or becoming vegan, but optimizing locally sourced uh, 
plants seems to, in individuals, not in the study, uh, have a significant impact on, on glycinage. Uh, okay, so working from back to forward, are there steps in weight loss that have, um, where you see the effect? Or basically, is it like every five pounds, every 10 pounds that you start seeing the noticeable effect uh, on, on, on what you're measuring? Or, um, yeah, I guess it's starting there. Like, how, how is it? So it's, yeah. always, it's always going to be individual. Yeah. But in this um, 800 calories a day, they lost 10 kilograms in eight weeks, which is extensive. And What's that's a kilogram. A kilo I'm an American. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> I wouldn't know how to do the conversion it's off kilo. the top of my head. Uh, um, a gallon a gallon of milk is how many kilograms? I don't know how much that is in pounds. Um, okay, a gallon of water. How much is that? I, I don't know. Let's I'll Google this later. Kilogram. Okay, we we look at this later. So it's like it's like ten to fifteen pounds. Let's see. Do, should we do a little Google search and then we find yeah, out? Yeah, no, I feel bad for everybody. <laughs> Everyone's like th this dumb American. Uh, kilogram. No, kilogram. I am just as bad as on the other side. Oh, uh, for one kilogram, it's two pounds. So if it's 10, it's 20 pounds. Wow, that's that's pretty significant, but uh, achievable depending on, you know, your your weight stuff. Yeah, no, everybody was overweight in that cohort. Um, you can survive off of 800 calories. I always felt like the you, your um, body doesn't need like more or something. You're to not going to enjoy it. No, no you're <laughs> not going to have a good time. Um, mm. And usually nobody can maintain that behavior. You know, you can do mm. it for eight weeks uh, and it, it's a, but it's not something you can maintain. So it's not a long-term, it's a nice proof of concept that, you know, weight loss works even in a short effect, um, purely positively. Mm. But yes, even in, they went on maintenance diets afterwards, and most of them just go back to, to their baseline by the end of the maintenance diets. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, like, does your body get pissed off? And then when you start going back to fifteen to 2,000 calories, depending on your stuff, does it just start absorbing it back in, you know, angry that you just starved it? But it sounds like yes. that is what will happen. No, that's exactly what happens. And this is why the whole personalized diet industries is being developed and i think that's going to change the way we, we think about weight loss because the short-term solutions are definitely not servings yeah and then uh so intense diet is that 800 calories or did you mean that in a different way um intense diet well it does need to be 800 calories but I'm, 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 what we studied was the 800 but i'm yeah. sure that less than that is also effective oh more than that would be good yeah, no, I just wanted, I didn't know if it meant also like, you know, only eating carrots and seeing if you turn orange. But yeah, I mean, like, was there other things to the intense factor other than just eating 800 calories? Um, no, they, I think the whole, it was caloric, pure caloric restriction. So no changes in, in diet apart from uh, how many calories. And then the other part was maintenance diet. So everybody going on different nutrient proportion. And that's mm. where we saw that people are, true individual for for you to or there is no one diet that had a significant effect on its own but individuals they respond really well to you know high carb or high protein okay yeah and then uh so we talked about male and female it do mm -hmm. does the do, do, does any of this data change for people who are transgender like has that population been studied um I think they, they when they go through the transgender and there's a lot of uh, hormone 
I'm not a scientist. I just know stuff yeah. changes. So like, does do they do they stay? How does that affect all these types of numbers? So we we don't have a cohort like that, but we do mm. have um, hormone replacement in 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 men and women, and it has a significant effect on on your glycom, and it's actually even the estrogen. Uh, that has an effect in men. So if men, um, uh, this was an intervention study, they suppress testosterone in men. If they give them um, uh, testosterone replacement on its own, they see a, first they see their glycans change pro-inflammatory or negatively. But when you give them replacement, they go back to their baseline. So they go back mm. to the healthy baseline. But if you give them replacement plus an aromatase inhibitor, which blocks the conversion to estrogen, then they don't see a positive change. They stay pro-inflammatory. So it's actually mm. even the estrogen in men that has an impact. And there could probably, and I think this is, there's so much that's not well studied or known, mm-hmm. but a lot of times, well, m- men also do have a certain amount of estrogen. And if they're on these blockers and they have no estrogen production, that would definitely be, bad for your glycogen age. Hmm. So A, definitely needs more research into that. And then B, there might be some complications where they have to like uh, uh, do the interventions of the, I don't know the term for this, but like becoming transgender, transgendering. I don't know if like the, that's the proper uh, terminology, like, but- Transition maybe. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, that's, that feels like it's probably more right. For people listening, <laughs> I apologize. I'm trying to understand the, uh, the there might just need, need, need like some finessing so that you don't have any downsides. Yes, I think uh, that medicine is what it is at the moment, and it's very experimental. Even if you're mm. not doing such a thing, if you're just um, looking for the right drug for you, a lot of times you just get given something that the you know we assume is going to work, and then they measure how you respond to it. So I think that's also what's happening on that side, and there's a lot of trial and error. Yeah, I think the technology has really come a far away compared to. Like even at the founding of America, for instance, which uh, uh, good for us, we we left the UK and prospered because of it. But anyway, so the, <laughs> which is a comment I always make to people in the UK. But uh, the our, our first president, George Washington, he died from being leached. They thought that was an appropriate intervention strategy. And then uh, the last hundred years has basically been like a cookie cutter. You either fit the fit the cookie cutter, or we chop off parts of you that doesn't make sense for the interventions and now we're getting to the point where it's going to be really personalized which is really fantastic because everyone is different which is weird you know there's eight billion people but the i think i read somewhere that the genetic difference between like let's say me and you is not that big compared to other animals which suggests that like at certain points in our history we were, we were down to like a very small population that rebounded a bunch of times um but it's just, it's just so wild that we can have such variability in how we we operate yes and the other problem is that we put so much emphasis on the genome of how yeah. we're going to understand the full picture of biology if we you know analyze the full genome now you know if we and none of that's actually fulfilled its promise i think what we learn is that biology is far more complex and actually yeah. even we thought that most of our genome codes for proteins and actually majority of our genome doesn't code for, for proteins. It does something else. We don't know what it does. And then all of these other layers on top of it, you're ne- we're never going to get to personalized medicine hmm. until we understand all of it. And actually glycans will p- play a huge role because they're the most dense information set. 
they incorporate a person's genetics, epigenetics, environmental influences, and you can tell, you, you can see if some, somebody's responding to something or, or not, or how mm. their health is progressing through time as an individual. So I think this will be a game changer for personalized medicine, but there's so much work to be done mm -hmm. until you can get to that stage. Are there, um, are there areas or avenues in, in, in the glycome that you're looking to explore? It's, I'm not just like trying to like, you know, hedge around and hear like the up to, up, up, upcoming stuff that uh, you don't want to talk about, but are there, are there known unknowns that you're excited to explore? Well, the first thing is there's only methodologies to look at a certain amount of glycoproteins. Mm -hmm. uh, and most proteins are actually glycoproteins. So there's some which the methodologies haven't even been developed for us to be able to look at them as, as, as glycoproteins. Um, we, of course, have to build on what we've already done. Going into a completely new area is, 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 is a big shift. But one thing we're excited about is, is the um, fertility mm -hmm. or understand because uh, that there's many, there's been a lot more done work there for, for men than women. For example, we know the conception is enabled by glycans. So you would have these very anti-inflammatory uh, structure called sialic acid, which coats sperm and enable it to evade the female's immune system to reach the egg. Otherwise, you know, there'll be no con uh, conception. Um, mm. And that's been there's been work done there, but very little has been done on um, uh, oocytes or, or, or women women's eggs. Mm. And that's something that's never been looked at. We don't even know if we can yet, um, you know, if they're big enough for us to to to, to analyze mm. uh, the glycans on them. But that's something we're gonna give a go. That, that's an experimental side that we are working on a new methodology for. Apart a, from, uh, yeah, just a ahead. quick inter, inter, interjection, I'd love to hear the, the rest. Of the why would the the female equivalent because i thought the sperm was much the sperm is much smaller and yet we know that why wouldn't the female egg be studyable in that, well, the way that you're talking about first issue is it's also precious research which is oh, hard to yeah. get hold of so there, there's one there mm -hmm. um and then, then there's a few more technical bits to it um I, I, we didn't do the work. Well, we actually did one paper in that. It was a collaborative study. It's also the type of structures there's um, that are easier to analyze versus something that's a little bit higher, harder. Okay. Yeah. All right. Makes sense. And then uh, what, what are some of the other areas? I interrupted you. So women's health is a big focus for us, menopause mm -hmm. particularly, but also understanding if we can see you know, if this is a process which is also somehow involved in fertility, because we do see changes before menopause or in the early perimenopause or in perimenopause. So we were doing some work there to understand if, if this has anything to do with fertility, because if you're talking about longevity, men and women have completely different problems. Mm -hmm. uh, for men is you do have a shorter lifespan, you do develop conditions much earlier than women but women lose fertility much earlier. So if you're talking to women about longevity, what they care about is fertility and how am I going to get through menopause or how can I, um, you know, not have such a horrible time or mm -hmm. it's, it's been talked about a little bit more. Uh, so that's an area we're, we're excited about and that we're focusing on. 
Apart from that, autoimmunity. So we have a lot of uh, predictive capability in autoimmune conditions, and they're some of the hardest to diagnose. So diagnosis can take very long time, sometimes more than a decade. A lot of times yeah. there's a misdiagnosis and then the treatment protocols are also not personalized or there, um, uh, there's a lot of trial in there. So that's an area we focus on as well. And then on the longevity side, all of these different, there are some interventions that we evaluated that are not published yet that we saw a very significant effect. And so we would want to it's been done in rats. We would want to move this forward to dogs to see if we can make also, we wouldn't be doing the intervention. We would be developing the glycan clock to measure it in, in a study. Mm. And then from there, racehorses, which would be a very nice, because um, if we can do it in dogs, we can do it in rats, do it in dogs, and then in horses, then definitely people will start to believe that we can do this in, in people. And that's a, this is a therapy you can do in, um, you can develop in, uh, with, with pet animals, but for people, you need a drug that mm -hmm. can be consumed at mass. If a dog is a, is a man's best friend, are horses a woman's best friend? Cause I, I when, I wonder what <laughs> like the female equivalent is. Cause if, if it's not, if it's a not dog, it, I always hear horses or cat, maybe it's cats. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's cats. I would bet for <laughs> yeah. cats, actually. <laughs> yeah, cats, cats feels right. The, um, is there, with with your vision going forward, is there anything that you need help with? Is there, uh, are you looking for a member of your team? Are you looking for anyone listening? Maybe there's something they could do to help. Well, well, need help. Well, ideally, I would, I would love to find a popular science writer who wants to write about glycans. Hmm. We don't have a single popular science book literature in this space. Uh, probably our website is one of the largest sources of, you know, simplified information on glycans as you can find. Um, so if you come across a good popular science writer and we can help get him interested in or her in glycans, that would that would be a big shift for our field. Hmm. Well, I feel like if you were to get chat GPT, uh, the fourth one, and then give it an outline of the data and say, write this like, like Chaucer that you, you're probably done in like, you know, an hour. Uh, that might, I don't know to, to the extent you want to do something like that, but I feel like that might be a, you know, a short, short circuit way to do it just yourself. The, what, do you see AI, ChatGP, that type of thing, machine learning Im impacting your work? Or is that something that you're, you're actually incorporating or that you're looking to see if you can incorporate? Um, so that's actually a good tip. We'll try it. I'll let you know if it comes out in the, yeah. in the forward. Thank Lowell Thompson. And then it's like, oh, thanks, Lowell, for this idea. You, you can even have the AI thank me. You don't have to do any work. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, we are exploring um, like an evidence based AI to give actionable hmm. advice combined with personal you know, presuppositions, risks. Uh, and, and see if we can make this smarter over time. It's not something we started working on, but it's part of our pipeline. Mm. Apart from that, the key problem is that this hasn't this field of biology hasn't been fully explored. Mm. So until you've actually extracted the data and done basic research to understand what what what, what what's actually happening, what do these glycans do? What does it mean? Um, there's very little you can do with AI. So that's we're, we're, we're still focused on our core. 
because everybody else is going with the hype. Mm-hmm. We, you know, eventually glycans will come to, to hype and then there'll be everybody interested in glycans. Um, but we're yet to, you know, we're, we're waiting for that thing. Mm-hmm. Do you, would there be a benefit to like a human glycone project? Well, we have one. Uh, so our chief scientific officer co-founded mm-hmm. the human glycan project. We start, it started in 2017. Yeah, but it's not it's not like done. So I think there's like work in progress. Not just it's work in progress. So there's an analogy they, they use, which was if go if sequencing the human genome was like going to the moon, then analyzing the full human glycome is like going to Mars. It's mm. not possible today. It's completely impossible. But if you know if, if we can move enough people to do it, we might get there. What makes it uh, not possible. Is it the financial component? Like what, what all needs to happen? I'll title this the, the human glycone yeah. project and get people excited for it. What all needs to come together to make the human glycone project, uh, not only work, but finish. finish? Let's say in the next like five years. I don't know. we give it like oh. a, before the end of 30, 30, 2030s, what, what do we need to do to make that happen? That would be a good question for the founders and, and the hmm. group. So I can pass it on and let you know what answers I, I get back. Yeah. They're great. But yeah, it, <laughs> we'll, uh, you know, because if, it, if it's one of those big projects, I love that type of stuff. Yeah. I'll give you a list of things. Yes. And then I'll put that in the show notes. So what advice for people, uh, people who want to get into this, like, not in a mean way, but like in a, a relatively unknown element of biology that has such a huge potential? What advice do you have people who are 25, 35 or, or starting to develop some skills that could be useful uh, to get in and actually, you know, you know, A, find unique stuff like this, but B, maybe even help um, in some a- aspect of it. What advice would you give people 25 to 35, which also happens to be the, most of the people who listen <laughs> that age grouping. So like, this is a uh, great for people listening. Yeah. So it's a space that if you get in there, you can do a lot of important work. Mm-hmm. A lot of other areas, um, your main, you know, you might just be replicating somebody else's exper- experiments. In this case, you would be the first to to do something. So on that side, it's very exciting. Apart from just being a incredibly complex and uh, interesting side of biology, there's so our research institute has sixty scientists now. Uh, Forty-five of them got their PhD in the institute. So if you're working, you know, if that's a field of interest, there's always um, the, the lab is based in Croatia, so it does, um, you know, appeal usually to. But people are traveling from uh, far, further and further to 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 come and uh, work in the lab. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of uh, exciting things happening around this in the U.S. around Carolyn Bertozzi. So she's definitely created a movement, and that's more uh, oncology focused, and it and it is a radical shift in how uh, accurately we can detect cancer early. So any um, and there's some exciting companies. So she co-founded one called Intervene. Uh, they're in San Francisco. Uh, they're uh, moving towards. They they already have markers on the uh, like uh, CLIA certified laboratory developed tests. Um, for different uh, whole spectrum of different cancers. So finding exciting startups you can join who are working on this area. And then for some reason, which is probably because the healthcare system is different, it's more preventative. China is doing a lot of work in glycomics. 
there's mm. more and more good papers coming out of China, even for aging. Uh, so that's a unique opportunity uh, where they're moving quite fast and they're focused on the field. Are there, so sci are there any skill sets that would be surprising that would be useful in this field? In the sense of like, you know, science makes sense if you have a PhD, machine learning, you know, from what you said. Um, is there anything, so when you look at what you're trying to do, is there a skill set that's rare or a type of person that's rare that would actually make a big impact? Because more often people think like, oh, I'm not a scientist, I can't do anything. But um, so I always try to find like what things out there that are for non-scientists or like something or skill sets that you find quite valuable. There's always lack of data analysts hmm. and it is a complex space, but you can learn and, and, and it's a space where also you can do a lot of building work that others will build on top of because there's only so many uh, methodologies developed today. So if you're a techie who wants to get into bio, this could be a nice entry. Um, you just have to bug the seniors to be your mentor and some of them are you usually they're keen if you're um, persistent enough mm -hmm. and um, you can pick up things up quite quickly. So it doesn't need to be uh, bio, but what we see also is a lot of clinicians are moving into research. So there's a lot of young physicians who are, are physician scientists or want to be physician scientists. And when they come into research, they're usually very quick to apply it. Because if you come into it as a scientist, your whole career will be focusing on a very narrow um, part and understand. And it will stay in the most times it will stay in, 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 in the lab in a way. You're, you, mm -hmm. if, if it reaches people in, in your life, lifetime, you are one of a few. Well, if you're a physician, you have an idea of what are real world problems that you experience. You have, you're already coming in with something that your interests will come from a place of a real world problem. And then it's easier to take it out of the lab and, and bring it into practice. So I think there's definitely a lot of space for physicians in science. Um, yeah. And then uh, a minute ago, you mentioned writing your own book. What are books they'd recommend people check out? I'll read them. I read every book pretty much that people recommend. Uh, so. Including textbooks. Like... <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I am an entrepreneur, so I, yeah. I, I love entrepreneurship books and I can talk to, uh, talk about them with you all day. Um, there was a good popular science book. I'm actually trying to convince the writer to, to turn to glycomics called The Cure. Mm. Um, and it talks about the immune system and all the um, immunotherapies and their history of development, but also just how basic science started and, 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 and got to that at the end of it. And on my definitely books that I like and would recommend, um, there's you have read multiple times. One is um, Maverick, which is a Brazilian entrepreneur who pretty mm. much turned all of the, he was a bit of a rebel. So anything that you should have done in business, he did it the other way <laughs> and uh, create a very cool company culture. And, and things which are actually, we're doing today, we're applying in business today. But when he, more and more of it, not all of it, because it was quite radical, like uh, a team of people selects their manager. 
There's no mm. imposing a manager on a team. Every, and they do this continually. They you know, decide if guy, this person is going to continue to be their manager. They even select the CEO. That's why he said he hasn't been CEO for the last 10 years. Um, apart from that, there's another one. Uh, I really like it. It's called um, Let It Go. It's a British mm. entrepreneur, a lady. Uh, she founded a company in the 1960s, which was the first... Um, Women programmers, they're called freelance uh, programmers. Uh, they're, you know, punch cards from, from home. All, all women, they coded the, uh, it started from, a, you know, from her kitchen into a 8 billion market um, cap company at the, at the end of it. Um, a very nice personal story, like biographies, and she doesn't leave any anything. Um, uh, she's tells her full story, you know, from ending, mm. up, ending up in a mental institute for a breakdown to her autistic son to all of the, you know, good and bad that that mm. you she's gone through as an entrepreneur. Um, so I, that's one I would recommend, and like I can go on, but I don't think you need the whole list of you know entrepreneurship books mm. or biographies of yeah. Oh, I'm a big fan of biographies. I'm I'm reading a a kind of a biography and kind of not it's about the civil rights actually you can see it on my screen right i gotta get the mirror right right there it's about like the civil rights movement in america and kind of follows dr king it's pretty cool but uh so I'm, I'm a big fan i'm gonna check those out i think the first programmer was a woman as well like uh for her name but i think the first programmer like the first like computer programmer was a, a a woman which is pretty cool the for people who want to stay up to date with what you're working on uh is the website is there a newsletter what would be the best way like the best one way to stay up to date with everything you're doing? We have um, a space in the website called Glycon Hub, mm -hmm. which is a blog, a podcast, and a newsletter. So it's a, the, the podcast is probably the, the best part of it. We interviewed the top glycobiologists in the field, and they're probably all the Glycon podcasts you're going to find when you go on to search. So if you type in Glycon, you're going <laughs> to, it's mainly going to be that and a, and a, and a few other interviews so i would i would highly recommend that we try to get their language down to something that um more people can understand but it is a technical field so build up an appetite um, mm -hmm. yeah it, well if you ever have a problem riding too high because I, I was once working with someone who had a an advanced advanced degree and uh, they kept trying to write for like the fifth grade to eighth grade level, which I think is what most people read at. And they could not write lower than graduate level. Like they, we had like one of those analysis things. Uh, they could not write lower than the graduate level, which is really funny to me. But um, you can get ChatGPT, you can get like uh, open source AI tools to translate it into a lower, not lower, but like a, uh, a different grade level in terms of reading uh, comprehension. But so just as an idea, you let me know if it works. But the, uh, Conversely, anyone uh, listening in who's reading something that's very complex and they're not understanding it, just take that and like put it into like a chat GPT type of thing and have them translate it into what you like. One thing I do is I give them a paragraph that I, I wrote and I say, take the take my paragraph, take this thing that I'm trying to understand and translate it into my language. So it's very customized. But the uh, I just I, I want to uh, thank you for coming on the show, for everyone listening in, for talking about something that really is relatively unknown. Like people don't know about this, but I think there is a unique and big opportunity to help a lot of people with it. So thanks for coming on and thanks for uh, sharing your knowledge with us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I enjoyed the conversation.